the glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days. Welcome to the gory days, the show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. It's the most wonderful time of the year, at least when this is being recorded, right before Christmas, just a couple weeks away. If you haven't got your shopping done, then you are probably SOL at this point. And this is a very special... Oh, Kyle Leone, your host for another week. I always forget to introduce myself at the top of that. The Gory Days, the show where we take a stroll, blah, blah, blah. Kyle Leone, your host here for another week. And what a week it is. It's not often that we get royalty here at the Gory Days, American royalty. Mm-hmm. My guest today is Los Angeles-based writer, producer, and performer originally from Plato, Texas. He studied sketch and improv at UCB, Second City, and iOS, so you know he's funny. He's written, produced, and starred in web series, short films, and an original musical. Can't wait to hear about that. He writes half-hour comedies, one of which was a semi-finalist in Final Draft's Big Break this year in 2019. And his work has been featured in LA Weekly, The Dallas Observer, Funny or Die, and The Huffington Post. Please welcome to the Gory Days, James DeLorean. How's it going? (laughs) It's going pretty well. Welcome. So right off the bat, I just want to get it out of the way. You are a DeLorean. It's not just like a funny uh, coincidence that you have that last name. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's my real name. Fantastic. So uh, like the Alec Baldwin movie and the more recent one that came out, you have like footage of your lineage? It's well. It's actually uh, actually kind of frustrating because I can I'll, imagine. Well, I mean, it's frustrating in the sense that I'll get on like Google, and then there will be like one. There's like one to two pictures of me per like five pictures of the real John DeLorean. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I am sort of in competition to uh, develop a, more of a digital. Uh, footprint okay i'm working on i'm getting a sense that you don't like to talk about this that maybe it's the first thing people bring up when meeting you no no i don't i don't have any aversion to talking about it Um, has it helped you in your career when people go like oh delorean no definitely not but i mean (laughs) if anything it just sort of sets it sets the expectation that like oh man this is gonna be some cool guy oh boy and uh you know i'm i'm not uh well so far you haven't uh unimpressed (laughs) (laughs) yeah um I think my buddy, he, my, one of my buddies, Dan, he said that he had some friend that was like, he, like we posted a video that we had done together online, and that guy saw the video and was like, hey, is this James DeLorean guy like the coolest guy ever? My buddy Dan was like, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> wow, really threw you under the bus there. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, it certainly hasn't helped me in my career or anything. Um, I think of anything, you know, it's like a memorable last name. So, I mean, yeah. that's, that's helpful. Hurt. Yeah, I mean, that's the most helpful thing about it. Um, and I tend to write like kind of throwback type stuff. My music is sort of throwback. Like everything I do is kind of a throwback thing. So it's very appropriate. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. Your bio here says that you're a writer, producer, performer. But mm-hmm. when I met you at uh, Nickelodeon, you mentioned that you were a composer too. Yeah. Is that kind of like on the back burner for you or are you still well, composing? Um, yeah. I mean, I still usually end up doing music for everything that I uh, write. Uh, I, nice. I've got like... Like John Carpenter. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, it's... Yes, that's accurate. To tie it back in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I, yeah, this musical, I, re- I mean, uh, there, was a, there was a time in my life, I guess my early, I mean, I've always like played piano by ear. Um, oh, you're self-taught. 
Well, sort of. I, in my early 20s, I got like a real piano teacher who was uh, this super influential person in my life. And I probably, honestly, I probably wouldn't have come out to LA if I hadn't met her. But um, Really? Yeah. Yeah. Did you know them out in Plato or Play-Doh? How do, you, how do I pronounce that? Um, uh, oh, uh, play, Play-Doh? Play-No. 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 Sorry about that. Oh, okay. I was thinking of the philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're from Plano. Yes. Uh, what brought you out here then? That teacher? Um, no, I mean, I didn't like follow her, uh, but I think she just gave me the, uh, uh, you know, we all have, uh, an influential person in our life that sort of empowers us to do the things that we think that we want to do, but we might not necessarily have the confidence to do, but you know, sure. it's like the Mr. Miyagi. She was like yeah. my Mr. Musical Mr. Miyagi. For some people that's a teacher for yeah. others. It might just be, um, I don't know, a friendly older authority figure uh-huh. in your life. Yeah. Is your family in the industry at all? No. Uh, my dad is a glove salesman and my mom is a librarian. Okay. Um, still back in Texas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So then you moved out here with just a dream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I came out here in my Honda Accord, which I still have, um, <laughs> right. which is in the the shop right now <laughs> reliable <laughs> <laughs> um still still relatively reliable sure but yeah i just came out here but basically i i came to a crossroads where i was like i had like applied for some music colleges which i wasn't i just wanted to be a good piano player i mean that's like still kind of my dream which i don't sure. know if i ever get around to it but um i applied for some music schools I didn't get in because mm-hmm. I'm not like a classical piano player, but I, I know how that is. Yeah. I just wanted to practice. I just wanted to become like the best musician that I could be. And I wanted to be able to take out financial aid and, you know, take out these loans and just like go to classes all the time and learn about music theory and just like become like a killer musician. So were you applying to places out here like UCLA or were you keeping it local? Um, I applied to Northridge, but Northridge has like, it's, uh, you probably know this, it's like much more of a jazz program. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm the Which w- is great. If you're into jazz. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's my problem. My problem as a musician is that I always, I, I never completely identified classical or jazz. Mm-hmm. I identified just as like someone that wrote music, you know, I'm influenced by movie scores and I'm influenced by movies like Disney movies that have songs in them, but not necessarily, not necessarily like Broadway musicals. Cause I don't think that with the exception of like the very, very best, it's totally exhausting to listen okay. to like 17 songs. Yeah. You're and, speaking my language yeah. right now. Yeah. That like that compulsion to want to compartmentalize yourself into like, Oh, I'm a jazz composer. Yeah. I'm a classical composer. When that, that's a shame. Cause mm-hmm. if anything, having a nice broad uh, spectrum of musical talent could be good in the end. Yeah. I mean, it's the same. Honestly, it's the same with my writing. Uh, I mean, anything I do my, you know, I, I don't want to pander, but I want to have sort of like as wide and like unpretentious of an appeal as possible. And uh, jazz musicians, uh, you know this, they're pretentious as fuck, and they're really judgmental. Well. <laughs> it's, it's not, a, okay, yeah, don't, don't agree with me. I, I, don't, but, I don't want to necessarily, I don't know what my listenership okay. is. I hey, don't want to so, throw sorry, shade on anybody. Sorry, jazz peeps. Um, <laughs> but go ahead. But Shots no, fired. Sorry, okay, um, uh, going to roll it back a little bit. In the academic world, that's how jazz musicians are. Oh, yeah. And it's very... Uh, it's not a very supportive environment to try to become a better musician, yeah. especially if you're a light bloomer like me. Um, so yeah, anyways, uh, I applied for a bunch of schools, um, a bunch being like four and I had like a backup school. My backup school was, um, like the, uh, I can't remember, like Texas state in oh, San Marcos. Okay. And I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll, worst case, I'll go to San Marcos. There'll be a bunch of cuties out there <laughs> and I'll be able to practice piano and meet a bunch of cuties. It'll be great. 
and uh, I didn't get into any of the schools because oh. I'm not a I'm not a very good instrumentalist. I'm a, I'm a pretty deep, you know I know how to write a song. Yeah. But that was the thing I ran into when I was applying to schools as a music major is that you have to already be yeah. uh, like seasoned musician uh-huh. yes. when it seems kind of backwards because that's what I thought I was going to school yes. for. So when yeah. I got there, I had to apply as a pre-soch major mm-hmm. and then change later, which is so bizarre as a kid when you're going from high school to college. Yeah, it's very work- It's very frustrating as a working class person to um, be faced with that kind of dilemma. Like if you go to law school... You can start as a complete, not, you know, complete moron. You have to, t- I guess you have to take the LSAT or whatever to get sure, into law school. But you can, any any of those programs, it's like you can start from just being a complete idiot to becoming a doctor or a complete idiot to becoming a lawyer. But uh, Because there's a path. I mean, because per- there's a life that's been lived a million yes. times before. Yeah. But with music, it's so much more ethereal and harder to pin down one path. Well, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, that's that's very true. But the thing that's frustrating is people that I was when I, I started taking music theory classes at community college at some point, And every and this was like pretty late. This is after I'd already worked with my piano teacher. And um, yeah, all these kids, they had been given lessons starting when they were like nine or you know, five or something. Yeah. And I was never pushed to do that. And I certainly do not blame my parents for doing it because I, I think I have a lot more excitement and appreciation and love for music than maybe some people that were forced into and it. And you're still but, just as much a valid person. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, fr- it's like, I'm not going to wait until I'm like 40 to apply to go to school. Yeah. So it's just when you put yourself in an environment where there are kids whose parents knew what they wanted yes, them to do yeah. at a very young age and didn't care about not forcing them yes. into it, it makes you feel like you're lesser and that yes. you're worse. Yes. And especially, yeah. And doing it, I mean, at that point when I was taking those classes, I was probably like 25 or something. And I was already self-conscious about like being old because I was in there with like kids who were fresh out of high school, yeah. like 18, 20 year olds that were way, 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 way better instrumentalists than me. And better instrumentalists, a, but don't have the life experience that you true. get from not being in school. That's true. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm uh, just trying to validate that you have good qualities that okay, you did yeah, back then. <laughs> being talked off the ledge. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so I guess uh, segueing away. So you moved out here mm-hmm. and uh, you started doing improv. Is that your background? Um, yeah, I, I did like some, I dabbled in like improv and sketch. And awesome. My, my general plan when I came out here was like, okay, the music thing isn't working out. Um, and I'm going to go out there and I had, I'd written scripts and stories and stuff since I was a kid. I mean, since I was like eight, uh, or seven or something. So I was like, I I know I was like always a good writer and it was always hard for me to be a a good musician in my eyes, but I always felt confident in those skills. So I was like, okay, well I'll go out to, I always sort of intended to ultimately go out to to Los Angeles and try this like filmmaking thing. So I came out here, got an internship. I'd like talked to someone on the phone like months ago. And that guy and I, we, and I, I t- uh, reconnected with him nice. and ended up interning for this guy. Um, who's a uh, pr- prolific uh, film producer who's been around for decades and became really good friends with um, his assistant. And that guy was kind of like a mentor to me. What an amazing relationship. How long did, was there like a period of, just not knowing what you're going to do. You said you called him like a month ago or a few months ago. Well, I called him, well, I called him like a, probably like within like a few weeks of me. Oh, getting okay. Here. So you weren't yeah. unemployed for like 
half a year or something. Yeah, I mean, but still, I did like a free, you know, I was working for free. It's not like so now on my, the company that I'm working at now, we employ interns and they like balk at being paid minimum wage. But <laughs> I I interned for free. These for, damn millennials. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, yeah, it's, yes, Yeah. I agree. So I want to pause <laughs> on one thing that you uh, said earlier, and I want to make sure that I get what you said. Um, the idea that you knew you were a good writer and mm -hmm. you always knew you were a good writer, yeah. but for some reason pivoted yourself toward music yeah. because you felt like you had to yes. or that's so fascinating. Cause that's how I felt. <laughs> well, I felt, um, I felt like, uh, it was a, yeah, I had, I had this dream when I was like 23 where I like it was this lucid dream where I like walked into a room and there was a there was basically two thirds of a jazz trio there. There was a guy on bass. There was a guy playing a he was doing like brush drums, and uh, then there was a piano that was unoccupied. And then I like sat down at it and I started trying to play and I couldn't play and I couldn't solo and I couldn't comp. And then uh, in the dream I started like soloing and it was good. And I was like, what the fuck? Like in the dream. And I was like, what? I can actually play. So that inspired me to go and try to find a good teacher that could teach me how to play that way. Right. And not many teachers can teach people how to play that way. And I, I got really, really lucky. But um, I, I mean, I just hate that schooling is yeah. what took that passion away from you, that you have this dream, oh. both literally and figuratively, to be a pianist. And the schooling and the environment just kind of beat that out of you. No, I wouldn't say that. Okay, I, good. I, I also have an inner ear disorder, so I had like a sudden hearing loss about ten years ago That's in my shame. left ear, um, and uh, I and then I just had another sudden hearing loss like uh, like six or seven months ago. So I've a I've kind of like a complicated relationship with music because when I'm making music, especially when I'm mixing and stuff, mm -hmm. which I haven't tried to do. Um, as I haven't tried to do recently. I mean, I did it for my musical, but sometimes it like pulls me into like thinking about what I'm hearing and stuff. And yeah. That, that can sort of like draw attention to my symptoms and things well, that I deal with. I don't know. I think of like, I, I, there's a hundred thousand people out there mm -hmm. who have perfect hearing and make yeah. music all the time. Yeah. You have a unique mm -hmm. relationship with sound that no one could possibly understand. And the only way to express that is through your music True. is to be, is for people to understand your relationship with sound. Yeah. So I think that's a, a really unique perspective. You've mentioned a musical a couple of mm -hmm. times now. So I want to talk about that. You've written and produced, uh, and um, I want to make sure I get the title on that right, Earworm, the mm -hmm. musical live. Yeah, Can you yeah, tell yeah. us about that? Um, so it was about a guy that uh, he had a song. This is, So there's people develop chronic earworm uh, where they have a song stuck in their head for okay. like months at a time. And I think there was, I read about some lady who she had, she had had uh, some song. It was some really dumb song from like the 1950s. Like how much is that dog in the window? <laughs> sure. woof, woof. Yeah. So, something like that. And she, she couldn't like function. I've had animal crackers in my soup stuck in my head since I was like nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I usually, I cycle through like one earworm, like every like three days, like, and that song will be stuck in my head. Uh huh. Um, and this is a full two act feature musical. Um, it wasn't like, so it, I wrote, it's like a short uh -huh. and then it was a very long short and then i adapted it to be like a live show that was about like an hour and five minutes long that's great and I, it performed where where did you get that i did uh we did it at the lyric hyperion i just ran out the space and like 
did it there and okay. got like some actors to come in. I had written this guy from, I, I mean, I got like my friends and some funny people that I know, um, who are really talented to be in it. People and, you still work with? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I would work with them again for sure. I haven't, some of those people I haven't, I mean, one of the guys is like a really good friend of mine. Um, I'm trying to think. And then, yeah, I mean, a couple of the guys, one of the guys I'd known since like fourth grade, he was oh, a guy from Texas. That's and, awesome. Yeah. That's one of the best collaborators you can get. Yeah. People yeah. who have you like you, a real history with. Yeah. So this was an opportunity to, uh, to work on your writing and your music. Did you, and you said you casted this too and you produced it and you directed it. Yeah. You did everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You seem very humble about the whole thing. I gotta say. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a good, it was definitely a really good experience, but, um, after, I, you know, anytime you do something like that and, I, I don't know if you feel this way, but it's like you, you think I, when I did that, I was like, this is the thing that's going to like make me break because I I'm doing everything. And there's like, my talent is undeniable. Like there's probably like, and you know, the, and I mean this like in a very modest way, but there's probably like t- less than 2% of all people could do that. And not, and, and that's not a brag. No, I'm just saying, no. I love to hear you like boost your ego no, like that. That's no, really important. It's a very specific skill set, and it's also a very specific psychological challenge, and it's awful. And I, I, when I, when I did it, I was super, super. It was I had a really hard time doing it because there's so many different like moving parts and like writing the songs and like writing the script and stuff. It was awful. Um, <laughs> The it, it ended up being like pretty decent and funny. But the process was the process. A nightmare. Yeah, it was a nightmare. Oh. Um, but I'm gonna do it again. That's what I was gonna ask. Is that something you'd go back to? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. Is that do what you're working one. on these days? Yeah. Um, Very cool. I'm working on a like a digital series that's that's also probably gonna be a musical comedy if I can like muster writing some songs again. Fantastic. Um, so but, your realm is comedy. That's yeah. your that's your world. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Because. Yeah. Um, Listeners, if you have a chance to visit James DeLorean's website, jamesdelorean.net, you got to check it out because it is a retro love letter to all those <laughs> old websites. And the cursor is your dog, your golden retriever. Yes. What's their name? Yeah, uh, his name is Milo. Okay. Um, he just turned two. Oh. Uh, yeah, he's he's my best buddy. Love to meet a fellow animal lover. Yeah, he's great. He's great. Um, yeah, I got him with my ex-girlfriend, uh, but now I am the... Uh, I have sole custody. Sure. I didn't like wrestle him away or anything. It was just, it, it's. You didn't have to steal him back? No. Good. It's, 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 yeah. If you do like a breakup with a dog, it's like doing the, if you do the split parenting thing, it's like not fair to new partners. And yeah. then also it's like. It gets uh, messy quick, I can imagine. Yeah. And also it's, yeah. I mean, I ended up like getting thrown out of her place. She like threw me and the dog out. Oh my. She was like, get out, both of you. Um, and then sorry, so, not to laugh. <laughs> no, no, no. You, I, I'm taking cues from you. You seem to be laughing about it. So no, no, I didn't it, seem to scar you. No, 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 no. It was. Uh, I mean, that yeah, that moment was terrible. But yeah, she was like, "Both of you, get out." Um, yeah. But uh, you use it in your writing. Yeah. It was. It was also hard for. It was hard for him to go back and forth between. She was living at her mom's house at the time. Okay. Um, because she was saving up money and blah blah blah. So but, Milo's used to a lot of people being around. Well, yeah, he loves all people and loves a lot of people and a lot of dogs and cats and everybody. But uh, yeah, I mean, going back and forth, I think he was like getting really confused. And okay. He, but yeah, he's like my best buddy. We do everything together. I take him to the office every day. 
Oh, um, that's great. Dog offices. I love that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Live Nation is the same way. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Derek works at Live Nation. Last but not least, I wanted to talk about that you were a semifinalist in the final in final drafts big break. Mm-hmm. What piece was that that uh, made it to the semifinals? Um, it was a it was a script called Daddy Boy that's about <laughs> okay. a um, this girl that takes a guy home, her guy best friend for the holidays, and he meets and falls in love with her widowed mother, and they end up hooking up and um, okay. you know it's the the relationship between them. Ultimately, in the show, you know, I tee it up for him to become this, like, guy that's trying to act like your dad, but has previously been her best friend for a few years. Now, where does that come from? Is that writing what you know? Is that no, personal that's, experience? No, that's never happened okay. before. Yeah, it was just a funny what-if yeah. scenario. And you did that all by yourself. That's awesome. Oops. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it's, it was fun. It was fun. It's, like, a very stupid script, um, and I'm honestly, I'm surprised that it plays because it's so it's like so not like the scripts that usually place even the comedies they have some sort of like cultural significance so it's kind of like shocking for me like the the opening scene like the opening scene is like a guy like um how how pg is this i mean i think we said fuck earlier so it's okay i mean the opening scene is like a guy gets a jellyfish sting on his dick and like pisses on his hand (laughs) and starts like jerking off uh pp onto (laughs) <laughs> on his dick to try to neutralize the burn. So okay. I can't believe, and that's like the first like five, four pages. Yeah, the opening image. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm surprised. The fi- thank you, Final Draft, for being on board with that. You for- know what? I feel like that mentality is probably something they picked up on. Is like, oh, all these other ones are trying, and they know they're gonna win. But this one, this one is just one that submitted, and it's clear that this is his voice, and he's just doing what he likes. Yeah, I was just having a good time. Yeah. Um, is that your humor? Is that your style? No, that that's script is particularly racy okay like my stuff is usually not and also i i I wrote like initial drafts of that uh probably like a few years ago as you do and as i as i've gone along my like you know my my uh i don't know what you call that yeah my scripts have become less raunchy and like more hard sure as you've matured so have your scripts yes exactly Yeah. Well, that's great. So the movie that you brought in today, and listeners, you already see the title of this episode, is Friday the 13th Part 2. Mm-hmm. So I had never seen this movie before, but you have a history with it. What's When did you first see this movie? Um, I think I first saw it when I was like 12 or 13. Um, my, I, I remember it, it. So the Friday the 13th movies... Um, used to come on USA. Like some of them would come on USA. Like a marathon? I think they would maybe do a marathon. Okay, just random syndication. Yeah, yeah. And I saw that. And the first one that I saw was I, I think they probably did like a part one, part two, back to back or something. But the first one that I saw appropriately was part two, which is the first time that you see Jason. Yeah. Um, but we saw it like edited for content as children. So I might have been younger than twelve or thirteen. But it was like a family experience where I watched <laughs> it with like my brothers and my cousins. Were and, they older? Um, one cousin, she was pretty young. Uh, one is older than me. My brothers are older than me. Um, but we so were... the kids gathered around the TV to yeah. watch Friday the 13th part two. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was great. And it was at my grandparents' house too. So like my grandma was definitely around. I don't know what her reaction was to that. It was probably some, you know, like you guys shouldn't be watching that. But was this the first horror movie that you uh, remember? Or was this at least one that started your appreciation for horror? I think this is probably like, this might be like the first horror movie that wow. I've seen. Um, and it's, and 
lucky for me, it's a really good one. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It does open with a 10 minute flashback. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. It's like <laughs> they knew people were going to come to this movie, not having seen the original. So it's just like previously on Friday yeah. the 13th. Yeah. Yeah. So really quick, I'll go through a brief timeline of how this movie got made. Obviously, 1979, Friday the 13th came out, uh, the original directed by Sean S. Cunningham. Paramount, so the original plan was that this would be a series of anthology films, Mm -hmm. that the original Friday the 13th would be a standalone, closed-off story about a mother going insane after her son died, Pamela Voorhees. The next movie would star a completely new group of characters with a completely different hook, and it would just have the it would share the title Friday the Thirteenth. But when they saw how well this did, I think it was um, let's see. For some reason, in my research, three owners of Esquire Theaters, Phil Scuderi, Steve Manassian, and Bob Barsamian, were the ones that influenced the movie uh, studio Paramount to say, "No, no, no, Jason needs to come back." And so when Sean S. Cunningham heard that, and they thought. He was told, we want you to direct this movie where Jason comes back and he's the killer. He was so upset because I don't know if you've seen the original, but in it, Jason is only seen at the very end as a child. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be a theme through this whole episode is this big problem I have of Uh, Jason died as a child. Yes, the continuity. So how the hell is he an adult full grown in this movie? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I was uh, actually doing the math on it um, because uh, this has been discussed before um, by uh, friends and others. And uh, I'm sure it's the first thing that comes up. Well, yeah, when you see, so Jason died, I think when he was seven. Uh, Is that what they say in the first one? I think it's yeah. I know he was a kid. I know he was a kid, so he was like seven or eight years old. I yeah. think he was seven, but he died in 1957. Uh, second movie is 1979. So this movie, this movie is 1984. Oh, oh, right. they, yeah. they ran. Well, because oh, it's five years. years. Yeah. So it's kind of confusing. This yeah, yeah, movie yeah. takes place in the, in the future, future because it came out in 1981, but it takes place in 1984. So it takes place in the near dystopian future. <laughs> yeah. But they don't have hover cars. So I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So, so if it was 1984, then Jason would have been 33 or something. But even if, though he yeah died as a seven year old. And at the end of part one, yeah, they had to they had to retcon it to yeah. give it legs as a series. And they try; it's basically like a throwaway in the um, campfire story that they they tell is that oh he must have been like foraging off of live animals and uh, vegetation out in the forest to be a full grown man. I mean, it stands to reason that he could make a derelict like cabin yeah. out of sheet metal and stuff like that, which is pretty scary. <laughs> which is yeah, honestly like one of the scariest parts is that he's like sustaining himself out mm-hmm. there. But to be a child and and do that knowing that Camp Crystal Lake is not very far from the roads. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. like it's an island secluded. He's not like a uh, an aborigine or like a pygmy out in the the Borneo or something. Yeah, I guess he was already socialized before he drowned in the lake, so yes. he would be attracted to other humans as and, opposed to. And there's even the uh, I mean the opening, like you said, is the flashback. Or um, I, I guess technically, yeah, it's a flashback because they say that she died two months after the events of the original. Two months after the events of the original, and which took place in 1979, he calls her on the phone. And it's like, oh, hello, yeah, right. and, and he's not there. Jason knows how to use phones? Yeah, yeah that's a good point. was alive in 1950. Okay, anyway. 
He also, yeah, I, I still don't understand. Does he? He seems like he gets to like upstate New York or whatever to kill Alice. Yeah. So he like, I don't know if he took a train or a cab or. So, so that's the first thing. Uh, so anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my first segment, we go through the movie, just kind of like quickly beats of how everybody died, and I call this segment "What the hell just happened." So the movie opens with Alice's dream of what happened at the end of the last movie, which already doesn't answer the big question at the end of was that a dream or wasn't it where she got pulled over under the water, but then suddenly woke up. And they even go so far as to reiterate the final like thing that she says of like, then he's still out there. It's like, what? No, no. Why make that leap? So anyway, long story short, she dies. She gets stabbed in the uh, temple with an ice pick by obviously Jason. Because he's the one that took his mother's head, followed her to, we can only assume, is far away from Camp Crystal Lake. And poor poor Alice, she just wanted to move on with her life. Yeah. And uh, and uh, the horrors followed her, and she died. Do, do you know about like the behind-the-scenes stuff with her, like that she was being stalked in real life? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that uh, Alice King, or the character's name is Alice, but yeah. the uh, actress, Adrian King, was mm-hmm. stalked in real life. Yeah. And it got to a point where the guy broke into her home and held a gun to her head, threatened to kill her. He spent some time in prison, but it traumatized her for life, and she didn't return to filming until she was a, a stunt performer in Ghostbusters. Really? Yeah. So did she? Did did the gun to her head thing happen before or after this? Before this. So in the summer between Friday the Thirteenth oh pa- Part One and Friday the Part Two, she was stalked by this dude. And then once that was all over and she's finally getting over it, she gets a call from Paramount and says, hey, we want you to reprise your role in this new movie. Wow. And she said, yes. And the original script was going to star her. It was going to be her coming back. But she said, no, I'll do this. But I want to be in this movie as little as possible because I I don't want to live that nightmare again. So that's why she dies in the beginning. I still wouldn't be on it. I mean, I would say no, 100 percent. I would not feel comfortable getting stabbed in the head. Uh, with an ice pack, knowing that there was some nutcase that might see it and then be like, ooh, that that does it for me. Like, if there's even 1% of people that are ready to stalk someone, mm-hmm. they just need a target. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the to add insult to injury, uh, um, literally, the ice pick didn't retract the first time. Oh, that's right. Is yeah, that yeah, when yeah, they yeah. originally filmed it, the ice pick is supposed to be like one of those trick knives where it goes back into the handle, but it like locked up. And so they poked a hole into the side of her head God. and she had to get like on set medic. Wow, that's really... <laughs> so can you imagine like saying... Probably, like, talking with your parents about it, like, I don't know if I want to do this, and them saying, like, oh, we support you, and you finally decide, okay, I'm going to do this, and that's your yeah. experience. Yeah, then you get stabbed <laughs> in the head. So then the movie, I love the title sequence where the title, like, flies oh. in and then explodes. That's, a, that's actually one of my favorite title cards great. in the movie, if not my favorite. I mean, it's uh, it gets a big laugh. Oh, the thing, for me, will always be one of my favorite title sequences of the, like, the burning letters. In. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. yeah, I love the thing. I gave that one, like, five thumbs. Uh, anyway, it's been five years since the murder at Camp Crystal Lake, a.k.a. Camp Blood. Mm-hmm. It's the summer of 1984, and we've got a brand new uh, team of camp counselors. We've got Ginny, Paul, Alice, Ted, Vicky, Sandra, Mark, Jeff, 
Terry, and Scott. Jeez, it's a lot of people, but don't worry. Yeah. They'll all be dead in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the leader of the camp is Paul, he's and gonna... his girlfriend is Ginny. And Paul is kind of an asshole. <laughs> I love his style is so weird. He's like, he's talking down to everybody yeah. like he's in charge. But then he tells them that like ghost story where he's like, I don't want to scare anybody. <laughs> but here's the scariest thing you've ever heard. <laughs> and then when he's done, he asks his girlfriend, Ginny, what'd you think? <laughs> like, you asshole. Yeah, I thought he was a dick the whole time, too. I thought, isn't, weren't Paul and Jenny, like, a thing? And then she's like, I don't want to get back together this summer. Oh, I didn't pick up on that line. I, th- I know th- they're a thing. I think that that, I thought they were, like, that they had a thing before, and he's, like, trying to, I, th- I thought, maybe I'm remembering wrong. Oh, or maybe, no, 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 I just didn't pick up on that. But, yeah, I think, I think there's, yeah, some line about that the first time that they're in the cabin yeah, 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 together, yeah, 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 yeah. and you don't know if they're a thing uh-huh. yet, and then they kiss. Okay. I think you're right. Yeah, there's something on there that says, like, yeah, their history's kind of rocky. Yeah, She's yeah. not sure about getting back. Um, but you're right. There He's are a Gemini. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They just don't combat. They're just not compatible. <laughs> they're too different. Uh, so we've got Ginny and Paul. They're an item. Uh, Vicky and Mark. Mark is the. Uh, uh, how do I? I always want to say the right thing. Uh, he's not. Is he handicapped? He's uh, he's the wheelchair bound man. Yeah, he's a man in a wheelchair. He's a guy in a wheelchair. Yeah. Why am I overthinking it? Um, Vicky and Mark are an item, and then Jeff and uh, Sandra. Everyone else, basically, Scott and Terry are, like, flirting, but they never really become a thing, so. Anyway, our first death is when Ginny and Paul go to sleep, Crazy Ralph is, like, watching them. Oh, yes. And he gets garroted behind the tree. Yeah, he has a he has a pretty brutal death. <laughs> Which is so weird for, him, for Jason to garrot him instead of, like, just stabbing like he does later. The physics also don't make sense that Jason is so, his arms are so long, he can reach around a tree. <laughs> I love how in later movies they like kind of establish this supernatural element yeah, to Jason that he can teleport and he's strong enough to lift like a full grown man up above his head uh, and like choke him to death. But in this movie, he's just a dude. Yeah, which makes it scarier. He's very sure. much just a like hillbilly mm-hmm. deformed guy running around uh, stabbing people. He's he's even like kind of overpowered by Paul mm-hmm. later in the movie. Oh yeah, yeah, at yeah. The very end. Yeah, they have like a good fight. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that makes it scarier. What like the the real horror of yeah, a person a, running around? It's like a scary versus a like, ghost man. It's a scary like mutant man in the forest, and it, it seems like I mean, uh, yeah. I love your style. Do do me a favor and talk right in oh, the yeah, microphone. But yeah, a scary a scary mutant man in the forest. Uh, it definitely gave me the hills have eyes vibes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of being hunted by. Uh, I guess, like, with The Hills Have Eyes, there's the added element of, this is not my environment. Mm -hmm. I am not in control here. But with Jason, I never got the sense that, oh, these are his woods. He knows these woods like the back of his hands, and I'm going to get lost, but he's going to know all these shortcuts and stuff, which I feel like is a missed opportunity Mm -hmm. if he really did live in these woods for 30 years or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, the second death is kind of weird. Terry goes for an after-dinner walk where she skinny dips. This is the first shot where it's just full-on stripping in front of the camera, no cuts, those glorious 80s where this poor yeah. woman has to completely disrobe and then immediately go into what I'm sure was freezing cold yeah. water yeah. to swim around, only for her clothes to get stolen by uh, Scott. They run away, Scott gets caught in a trap, and he gets his throat slit. Mm-hmm. And by the time she gets back, it's a weird cut where the camera zooms in on her and she screams, and we're safe to assume that she died it's a pov stabbing right yeah well it's a pov 
But then we don't see her body, which is confirmed dead until the very end when she's on the altar with Pamela Voorhees. You see her, like, wince, though. Yeah, she just goes like, ah! Yeah, Yeah. but um, it's kind of the same as Vicky later when she just kind of goes like, ugh, and then a little bit of blood comes out of her mouth. Like, ran out of money on those ones. the reason they do that is they cut to casino night. The the counselors are having one last night on the town before, I guess, camp starts tomorrow. Um, And so the rest of the movie takes place this night where a number of them, including Ginny, Ted, I hate Ted so much. Um, And uh, uh, something about Ted strikes me as like, whose kid is this? His producer like muscled his way onto this set because everyone else is super sexy and he's this and he's supposed to be the comedic relief, but he doesn't get enough lines to warrant that. Um, So it's really disappointing that he doesn't die when Ginny and... uh, Paul leave the casino, they leave the bar, Ted stays there, and he's not in the rest of the movie, so it's safe to assume that he oh, yeah. got a ride home, or like stayed there all night, but he survives, which is really unusual for 80s horror movies. Yeah, he just fell asleep in the bathroom yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean, even Scream 2 killed off uh, Randy, uh, uh, Jamie Kennedy's character, and he's like the comedic mm-hmm. relief, so yeah. I was kind of expecting it. And then the next death is Mark. So, Mark and... Uh, Vicky have been flirting hard, and I love their flirting scenes. It's so realistic. Yeah, they they have good chemistry. They really do, and I found out that um, the actor that played Sandra had a real-life crush. I mean, uh, Vicky had a real-life crush Mm -hmm. on Mark. Unfortunately, Mark's gay. So... Uh, Jeff and Sandra go away to canoodle while Mark and Vicky are talking to each other. Mark and Vicky part ways, and Mark's outside and gets macheted in the face. Yeah. And that one, that's such a shock. I remember just, like, thinking about how close Jason had to get to whap him yeah. in the face, and his just, like, that noise that he's making as he wheels down the staircase. Yeah. That was probably one of the better deaths for me. It's Yeah, it's the most... I, I'd say it's uh, the second most tragic death of the whole franchise. Oh. The first one is probably Crispin Glover in part... I think in part four, Crispin Glover, you like, I felt bad when he got killed. Do but, tell. How does he die? Um, I think he, like, just goes into the bathroom after he finally has sex with this girl, and then he's, like, feeling good, and he's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. And then... I think he might, I might be getting confused with someone else, but I think he gets like picked up and like gutted like a machete to the torso or something. Oh, damn. But it's a very, his death is very violent and he plays his role so like sweet and just, he seems like such a like beta guy and such like sweetie pie, even though Chris McGlover is a real weirdo, but. um, Okay. Yeah. I see what you mean. Like this guy did everything right. He was respectful. He was a super nice guy. He's in a wheelchair, so you kind of feel like he should be safe. And yeah. then they chop him right in the face. Yeah, it's very sad. But then the shot of the dummy going down the stairs. <laughs> I love how it's clearly the same shot from two <laughs> angles. That they just like, okay, use this one. And now use the same shot, but from this angle. And then white out before he falls out. Yeah, I feel like the dummy probably sprung out of the chair like <laughs> yeah. hilariously right after that point. So they have to cut it. Yeah, like, there's Freeze a few, frame and fade to white. There's a few edits in this movie like that. where like Especially the ending one with the head zoom in where it's obvious they cut yeah. and just hold for a little bit. Yeah. And the, zo- uh, the slow-mo with... Jason, like, bursting through the window. yeah. Um, But I'm getting ahead of myself. Vicky goes up looking for Jeff and Sandra, who have been having sex, and uh, Jason found them and skewered them Mm -hmm. and made a, like, shish kebab out of them. And I love that, because the spear that he gets is clearly not long enough to pierce two bodies and the bed and get all the way down to the floor. Oh, yeah. But I'm not that concerned about it. What I am concerned about is that after Jason killed them... 
He takes Jeff's body and hangs him up on the wall with like a makeshift noose mm. and then proceeds to climb into bed and hide under the covers <laughs> waiting for Vicky to like tiptoe over so that he can pop out and go boo. It's pretty scary though when he pops out. <laughs> oh, it is a great. There's three awesome big scares in this movie. It's this one, the bathroom window one, and then the third one at the very, very end. But the mm. bathroom one and this one, I was like, oh, okay, you got yeah. me. And then they proceed to ruin it all by just having the slow close of of the like rack focused uh knife getting closer and closer and the whole time just like oh my god she can totally get away but she's like no no well there is like psychologically there's uh there two bit you can either uh, fight or flight fight or freeze like in an actual traumatic situation people will either fight or freeze interesting so they'll either i think it's like fight run or freeze but some people they just freeze so there is some sort of uh psychological basis to the woman just standing there and like Ugh, please don't kill me sure like that could actually happen yeah it's Even like the- watching a car accident yeah like, you can't do anything yeah. you're just kind of stunned and maybe you don't think to run out of the way yeah. yeah yeah i was listening to a podcast recently um a true crime podcast and this woman she talked about how someone had hid under a car and like under her car and she was going to her car and the guy popped out from under her car in front of her and her first instinct was to say i'm sorry like because she didn't have enough time to process so she was just like which is really really sad yeah what your brain does yeah panic mode yeah when just something happens that you literally can't believe sometimes you're just like what 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 your brain is so desperate to find a normalcy yeah yeah you try to instigate it yeah yeah wow Listen to a lot of true crime podcasts? Um, yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Pretty entertaining. <laughs> so at casino night, Ginny gets an opportunity to empathize or sympathize with uh, Jason because we established earlier that she has a degree or is at least studying oh, yes. child psychology. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, which, you know, keys into her, nice her putting on the sweater at the end. Yeah. And yeah. But I like it because it validates Jason in a way that, like, only, only like I do when I'm talking with people afterward because you see a movie and it's like, yeah, Jason walking around. But these first two movies are the most like character driven yeah. for Jason is, yeah, if you follow the like, you know, canon that Jason somehow survived the drowning and instead of telling his mom, hey, I'm not dead, watched from afar yeah. until she got beheaded. And that was so traumatic for him that he broke. And he's now this like walking man child. And all he really wants is to please his mommy. Mm-hmm. And that is so realistic that like, I mean, I, I can't, I, I believe it. It's not like a leap of logic or a, a suspension of disbelief for me. Yeah, it works. Yeah, it, it works. Which is crazy that they leap so far away from that with the next, uh, with all the other movies. Yeah, they break it pretty quickly, which is kind of a bummer because, yeah, the first two, I mean, I think the second one is, the second one and the sixth one. It's more interesting than Freddy, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm not really into, because it's like, there's no real threat. I mean, the way the Nightmare on Elm Street movies do it, there is a real threat. But, like, there is no real threat of, like, a man in your dreams killing you. But there is a real threat if you go and stay at a cabin in Big Sur and you're out on a hike in the woods or Adrian something. King lived it. That is yeah. real. Yeah. She's not going to get killed in her dreams. That's never going yeah. to happen. But she will get attacked by a man. Yeah. That's very real. It's yeah. like Halloween. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. even then, Halloween... Uh, one, Michael is kind of supernatural in that, like, he's blinking away and he's su- he is super strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, God, Halloween is good. Oh, I should do that one. Yeah, Halloween. Uh, anyway, let's just race to the end here as Jason 
So Paul and Jenny get home, and Jason's like in the room with them, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. Paul and Jason struggle, and I was so confused. I was like, oh, I guess Paul is like their equal strength. Jason isn't that strong. Which is cool. Which is cool cool. that he's just a dude. And even when um, she like hits him with a chair, and he's like like groaning on the ground, like (laughs) like wow, she really gave it to him. Which is actually pretty funny. Like (laughs) oh man, he's just like yeah, he's just like give me a minute. And so uh, Jason gives chase. He chases Jenny for a while. Mm-hmm. There's a few like fade dissolves that make oh, me think yeah, like, yeah, wow, yeah, he's yeah. chasing for a while. And eventually she hides under a bed. I love that scene where the rat comes up to her and she pees herself. Yeah. And Jason gets up on a chair so that she he thinks she thinks he's not there. And then he jumps down from the chair. That's so great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. just kind of silly that he like falls over. Yeah, <laughs> the chair some, breaks. There's some very good cat and mouse stuff. Yeah, but then finally. Uh, Paul shows up again, struggles again, uh, and Ginny gets the chance to wallop Jason on the head with something. And that's when Paul and Ginny get back to the cabin and we hear the music and everything's safe and the door, something's at the door and we go over to it. Oh, oh, it's just Muffin, the dog that we thought was definitely dead. And now we can all relax and then boom, through the window, bursting through the window, we finally get our good look at Jason in this movie. (laughs) And he's got beautiful flowing locks. Yes, he does. Ha- he does have some nice hair. Yeah. What, what's your What's your thoughts on Jason's look here? Because it's wildly different from any of the others. Um, I'm still into it. Like he's like you said, it's more realistic. Yeah, but he's also. I mean, one one thing to be said. I mean, this is like a very progressive take on, um, on a Friday the Thirteenth movie or an '80s slasher movie in particular. Yeah, particularly a movie from the '80s. But he has like a, a cranial facial disorder. Um, which there, not everyone that has a cranial facial disorder has a disability or mental disability, or is a serial killer, or yes, and not everyone <laughs> that has not everyone that has a mental disability is as a cabin cabin dwelling uh, serial killer. Despite recent Todd Phillips movies, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's a uh, so yeah. I mean, it's a little problematic in that sense, but uh, yeah, it looks pretty scary to me. Yeah, yeah, and then <laughs> it whites out again to. She's just getting loaded into an ambulance, mm-hmm. and she's asking questions, and no one's answering her. She's yeah. going, where's Paul? Where's Paul? Yeah. And they load her up, and they drive away, and the final closing image is this long zoom to Pamela Voorhees' like, decomposed oh, yeah. head. And as anyone probably who's done like 1% of research knows, originally that head was supposed to wink, uh-huh. smile and wink, and then the movie would close. Yeah. But they thought it was too silly once they saw it, so yeah. it just ends. Yeah, it looks stupid. Yeah, and that's Friday the 13th, part two. Mm-hmm. That's what the hell just happened. So, yeah, right off the bat, I have some major questions. Why don't we just start with Jason? Do you believe... I mean, obviously, the, the footage in this movie makes you think one thing, but what do you, James, think? Did Jason die back then? Um, and if so, who is this? Yeah, I, I just think of it in terms of, like, they're basically doing, like, a bit of a reboot in part two where this guy I, the the math doesn't really add up yeah so, they just wanted another killer in yeah a, well i was gonna say in a mask but i don't think she actually has a mask in the first one i think you just don't see them yeah, it's yeah. all pov stuff yeah it's uh i think they just had to retool the franchise and and make it so that jason was the killer instead and right from the get-go yeah yeah and i mean it set things up nicely even if the logic so i don't really think about the logic too much i mean mean, i'm kind of being facetious the movie doesn't care yeah it clearly has no interest in telling you like what is real and what isn't it's very it's kind of ironic because my even i i mean maybe my grandfather saw this movie but my grandfather who definitely had no interest in friday the 13 movies would always say 
um, old man teeters come, gonna come and get you like a man, old man a, teeters old man teeter like a man in a potato sack mask oh. is gonna come and get you <laughs> okay uh, so yeah I mean he's basically old man teeter um, that mask is pretty creepy yeah. with a little hole poking out I think it's scarier than the uh, hockey mask myself it's fun like the Friday the 13th video game has uh, mm-hmm. all the costumes from all the other movies and that's one of the ones yeah. that stands the test of time and it's yeah. so simple mm-hmm. yeah yeah so everybody seems to know the story of Jason, that he died, his mom went crazy, someone beheaded her, and now the camp's closed. And then everyone seems to make this wild leap to assume that he's alive out yeah, there. Yeah. And I just can't, just like movie-wise, I can't like connect those two dots. And once again, I'm being facetious. The movie does not expect you to. I thought Muffin died. Yeah. And they want you to think Muffin died. What what is the payoff in Muffin not dying? The fake scare? Like ah, God, I just the way they show it, like clearly that's Muffin. Yes. The way the fur is. It's yes. a dog like yeah. how many other dogs are running around this camp? There is also the interpretation that somewhere along the line it turned into a dream and that like last that last sequence is like some sort of like concussion days like fever dream. And then, you know, cuts to her on the... I have heard that, and yeah. I have a rebuttal. Um, the screenwriter for this movie, Ron Kurtz, said, Jason coming through the window was written as reality. My intent was this. Paul is, in fact, killed by Jason. Ginny survives. She asks when found, where is Paul? Yeah. Then we cut to Jason's shack and the close-up of Mrs. Voorhees' head. Slowly, distinctly, the diabolical smile forms to confirm that, uh, to tell us that Jason has killed Paul. So when I read that, I know it's not directly related to what you said, but when I read that, I interpret that this whole movie was not a dream, that the whole movie, at least to the screenwriter, was reality. But as I'm learning, when I get more and more input from uh, Marcus and McFeely versus uh, uh, the Russo brothers for Avengers Uh Endgame, that it's actually common for the screenwriter to have a very different idea of what they wrote versus what the director interpreted it as. True. Um, which I unfortunately don't have that much experience with, but do you have experience with, I know you traditionally like to handle what you do, but have you ever given your writing to somebody else and they've interpreted it differently? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I did a, I did a short film that it didn't go very well, but where me and my buddy wrote the script and then me and another, another guy ended up directing it. But yeah, his interpretation of the material was definitely a lot different than what we had in mind. Sometimes that can be better. Yeah. Sometimes that can be really hard to it, accept. It can be, yeah. I mean, it can either be like a perfect, like it, it can be harmony and the person can augment what you've done and they can do, they can sort of like paint a richer tapestry than mm-hmm. you're capable of. Yeah. Because if you are handling everything yourself, you're not going to think at it from different angles. Yeah, you get tunnel vision. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's hard to like open up, but someone with a different background and stuff can can sort of enhance things. Yeah. But, yeah. And there's even the argument that the audience gets its own lens, that there are three lenses to any story. There's the mm-hmm. screenwriter, there's the director, and then it's the audience yeah. who takes all of that in and makes their own head canon. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> my next question is, do you think the do you think they think Ginny killed all those people? No, no. When they when they arrest her, like no. she's the only one there. It's safe to say that she was probably covered in blood. True. Like what state did they find her in that they're like, okay, you are obviously a victim too. You clearly didn't kill everybody. 
I think the just like also you know the, it was the time it was uh, apparently 1984 and <laughs> yeah. uh, where we progressed. They see a, a petite blonde lady. They're not going to accuse her of killing everyone in there with you know and and stuff that she's not physically capable of over overpowering all these. I mean, dudes weren't, I guess, you know, as a guy, wheelchair, uh, she could probably pull that off, but still (laughs) probably just the blunt force trauma. She probably couldn't pull that off. Yeah. Um, And like bursting through a window, I imagine would be a little more difficult for her. Yeah. There's probably like a cartoon cut out of Jason's giant body in the, in the side of the cabin where he left through the window. (laughs) Like Looney Tunes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I haven't seen Friday the 13th part three. Have you? Yes. Okay. So ignoring it, Based on the events of the final shots of this movie, I like to ask, what happens next with what they've given us? What do you think happens? She goes to the hospital, and they treat her, and is she hunted down too, like Jason hunted down Alice? Um, well, she, yeah, final uh, part three, they don't even mess with her. Oh. It's just a whole new Jason's on the hunt again, and it's in 3D. I don't think she's in the third one. <laughs> the third one is 3D? That makes sense. The third one is great. Uh, That's the one where he gets his mask, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty... I mean, it's great, but it's also pretty rough. But I saw it at uh, the Alamo Draft House when I was like 20, no 21. And uh, I saw it in 3D as was intended. The red and blue? Uh, it wasn't red and blue. Oh. It was like two grays. Oh, like okay. it was 80s 3D was pretty good. Nice. Um, and it, it just died off. But yeah, yeah well, I've, it'll come back and the die. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like it keeps doing. Um, but yeah, it's uh, Friday the 13th Part Three. Uh, do, yeah, it doesn't do like a Halloween two type thing where it's like, it, which would be great if it was her in the hospital and then Jason's like coming through there and like, you know, with his machete. And, yeah. So it's kind of ironic that the original idea for Friday, Friday the 13th was to be an anthology story with these unconnected things all happening just on the day, Friday the 13th. That's how the TV show was, right? Uh, oh, no, I didn't watch the TV show. I think there was a TV series and Jason wasn't in it. And it was just oh, like, man. I think they did do the anthology approach and no well, one was well, into it. It's something that American Horror Story kind of picked up mm-hmm. with their seasons. But it's also ironic that the Friday the 13th movies kind of became that where Jason is the only recurring character and yeah. it's basically brand new people mm-hmm. with brand new circumstances. I mean, Jason X is a completely different story up in space in the future. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's not really a question, but Jason, when he puts that ha- uh, hood on, must stuff his flowing red locks up under it <laughs> so that they aren't pouring out when He's he puts... up in a man bun. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, that must be it. <laughs> <laughs> so we can move on to our next theme, which is screaming... Th- or our next segment, which is screaming themies. I like to talk about some of the major themes in this movie. The first one being man versus nature. That if you subscribe to the interpretation that Jason is now a force of nature being out in the woods and living off of it and only being like territorially protective, like a wolf. Mm -hmm. Then in that way, uh, this theme is the camp counselors are muscling in on, uh, Jason's territory, uh, in a kind of like return to camp blood, even though it's not exactly camp crystal Lake, they're like close enough that you can kind of wander over there. Jason. It's kind of loose. That was my best interpretation of, of that theme. I don't know. Thoughts on that. Um, Jason being a force of nature. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he's basically like, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, mountain man type. Yeah. And like his psychosis is so gone that he worships his mother's behead, uh, beheaded head. Um, the other part, uh, the other theme that I drummed up, obviously there's the one of lust, but I found it kind of weak in this one yeah. where a lot of the time it's like, 
oh, these teens are being promiscuous and mm-hmm. they just met and they're being really loose and flippant with their sexuality. These this are like one, real, they're monogamous. And they're like real, like decent, like wholesome kids, basically. There's no bullying. They treat each other well. If anything, yeah. Ted is the only one that does like any kind of bullying. Yeah, but he's just kind of a douchebag. He's just a it's, joker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He doesn't deserve to get punished for it. Yeah. So that theme kind of fell flat for me. They're not like hedonistic, like sins. They're they're just kids. Yeah, this is, I, I think they kind of, after this one, they went more into the, it was probably like part four-ish. When I mean Crispin Glover's in that, as I mentioned, I think he's in the <laughs> a fourth couple one. of times. <laughs> and he's great, but yeah, I mean they started getting more into the arch- archetype stuff later, where yeah. people are these like exaggerated archetypes. Where but the horny teens get punished. Yeah, in this movie they're just like all like pretty cool. Like it seems like for the most part they're pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and pretty normal and like wholesome, but yeah, no one's like a raging asshole or like. No one's, uh, yeah, there's not like a, you know, super like slutty girl or, you know, it's just like a bunch of people hanging out. Yeah. I realized that I forgot to mention that Deputy Winslow, I forgot that dad. Oh, there was an yeah. officer that uh, he's <laughs> the first one that fall, comes upon the derelict cabin that Jason's made out of sheet metal. And he finds the toilet that's got, it looks like it's a working toilet. Yeah, Jason is a bit of a, a, a plumber, plumber as well. <laughs> um, and uh, he gets, oh man, that death man, yeah, when he gets the back end of the hammer it's in his really- head brutal oh yeah it is it's so like it, less is more with yeah. some of these deaths yeah it hurts to watch that yeah um so my next segment is kills 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 where we quickly go through uh how everybody was killed mrs Voorhees was beheaded mm. in the flashback alice was stabbed in the temple with an ice pick crazy ralph got garroted against a tree deputy winslow got hammered in the back of the head scott in one of the most disappointing death it, uh gets his throat slit and it just does not look good uh, Terry is stabbed. Well, she shows probably, up. Yeah. yeah, but probably Jeff and Sandra are skewered. Mark is macheted right in the face. And, uh, Vicky is stabbed too, bringing us to a total of 10, 10 deaths. Uh, nine, if you don't count Mrs. Voorhees, but we saw it in this mm-hmm. one. So I'm going to count it. So pretty good. I've watched some of these horror movies where it's like one person died and you almost forget that it's yeah. a horror movie. There's some really good kills in this one, though. Yeah, yeah. Like like I said, that hammer one. The hammer. Um, the Mark. machete in the face mm-hmm. is pretty great. Um, and I think, yeah, Deputy Winslow. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> it's also, he also has a, I mean, that's like. He's the leg- only one trying to do good by these kids. It's a legitimate, that's a legitimately suspenseful scene, yeah. even though he uh, stumbles upon like a puddle. And then it's like, <laughs> oh no, man, I can't do it. Yeah, <laughs> like this is too much for me. <laughs> I've seen too much shit. I got two days to retirement. <laughs> I got to get out of here. <laughs> um, so then finally, my second to last segment is just some thoughts that I had. Um, the Mm-hmm. got really annoying for me at a certain point. Like, I think it was about three quarters through the film when he started chasing Ginny around. It was just so prevalent. And I don't care. It does not sound like kill, mom. Like, it's supposed to. Yeah. It's supposed to be him saying kill, 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 mom, mom, mom. mom, mom. mom. Yeah. But he's saying it to himself, and now it's just this noise that happens whenever he's around yeah, I mean, it's, but it, I think, Please defend it if you want. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. I mean, it's like a percussive motif. Uh, and uh, yeah, for me, it works. I It didn't get, it doesn't grade on me um, just because it's so iconic and yeah. it works. I mean, it, it, I mean, I can't think of any other sounds when someone shows up, Freddy, Chucky, yeah. J- uh, Michael. I can't think of like any music cues. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess when, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, my, like you can do that in a room, and people will instantly know what yeah, you're referring to. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, I, I, they could if they if they did like a Friday the thir- another Friday the Thirteenth reboot, which is inevitable, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like the you know him Henry Manfredini is that how you pronounce it? But the composer, it's like you could go without. That's right, Harry Manfredini. Yeah. You could go without like the the psycho ripoff score. Like you could do without his music, even though he scored pretty much all of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't think he did the. I'm sure he didn't do the reboot, but um, yeah, if you have the kick, kick, pa pa pa, then you're fine. Yeah. Like, but that's his. I mean, that's his doing. I don't think that's. Yeah, I, I think that's on him. Yeah. Yeah. One last little thought. I thought it was funny that Sean S. Cunningham, the director from the original, passed on this because he didn't like the story, but he let his wife edit it. So he was still in there in spirit. Well, he's still a producer, right? Uh, no, not for this one, I don't oh, believe. Really? Yeah, oh, really? I think he uh, cut ties, but obviously not entirely. Susan E. Cunningham got to be his uh, muse in there. Nice. Which brings me to my final uh, segment, which is when we rate this movie on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best, based on any criteria under the sun what'd you think of friday the 13th part two james um yeah i mean uh, logistical uh considerations aside it's still like a really good time it's still it's still a really easy watch and it's also hard for me to not watch it so i'd say like four and a half. Oh, fantastic I, yeah i really enjoy this high praise and so traditionally we'll award those thumbs to characters in the movie so you can give them all to one character or you can spread them up as you like um, I'd give him all the mark. I mean, he's a nice guy. <laughs> he is a nice guy. <laughs> he does everything right. This girl is throwing herself at him, and he's mm-hmm. just like playing it super cool the whole time. Yeah. So awesome. I like this movie too. In a microcosm, it's a really entertaining watch. The deaths are paced well enough mm-hmm. that you're engaged. The characters split at just the right time to give them each their own little focus. Even Ginny's monologue about, or soliloquy, whatever you want to call it, where she's musing on Jason's psychology. It's a great scene. Validates like a lot of the silliness, honestly, up to that point. And even the scary story that Paul delivers, that monologue is good. Mm-hmm. Like the way he tells it, it's well acted. Yeah. Um, and it's well shot too. A lot of those lingering shots where you wonder like, why are we still here? And then Jason moves in and it's like, oh. Um, and then even some good bait and switches where you think it's Jason like pushing something or picking something up. And then surprise, it's just another white guy with white hands. And they do it. Yeah, they do it with Ralph at some point. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. yeah. And they do it with uh, Scott too yeah. when he picks up uh, Terry's clothes and flirts. Um, oh, I guess Jason set up that rope trap that caught Scott. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably for animals, which I haven't seen any in this film. (laughs) There's no deer. There's nothing. But uh, so with all of that, all of that in mind, uh, even though Sean Cunningham didn't return, Steve Miner did a great job with this. Ron Kurtz did a fantastic job writing it. And Harry Manfredini, as you mentioned, was (laughs) the music was good. So I'm going to give it three thumbs. And I'm going to award my thumbs. I'm going to give one to, uh, let's see. <laughs> I love that they credit this on IMDb. I'm going to give one to Max. You remember Max, right? Who's that? The tow truck guy. The oh. guy who tows their car and then leaves for the rest of the movie. I'm going to give one to him because he definitely <laughs> deserves it. I'm going to give one to the actor who played Jason, Steve Daskowitz, because, Jesus, the IMDb trivia tells me that he got, like, the shit beat out of him in the course of this movie. So many accidents. The window at the end didn't break. Wow. He banged his head against that. The um, the scene where uh, Ginny, like, stops a machete hit with something else missed the first oh, time they yeah, did it, right. and it, like, sliced his thumb open. 
uh, just all kinds of crazy yeah. stuff when you're a stunt person on a small budget, uh, like, well, I know that small budget, 1.2 million, but still, the things that you have to put up with. So I'm going to give one to him, too. Uh, I got one more thumb. I'm going to give it to Ginny, even though she's kind of the... She's one of those final girls where things just kind of happen to her. She doesn't really get a chance to, like, take her agency into her own hands. Even when Paul is struggling with him, uh, with Jason, she just kind of stands there and goes, Paul? Yeah. Paul? That's, are you winning? That's, that seems really scary, though. <laughs> it is, because it brings up what you said, the flight, uh, fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. And yeah. that's what she's doing right there, that... She, what is she gonna do? They're struggling there. There's also something that that scene always really got to me because she says, "Paul, there's someone else in this room." Yeah, and it's just darkness. Yeah, and she's like, but she can sense that some there's like an animal in the room. Yeah, with them, basically. and she's right. And I thought about like God coming home to a dark house and there's someone in the room. You feel that? Yeah, I think I I think I have like my, probably like that. That's like a reason. The reason I'm afraid of the dark now. <laughs> is thinking, that like. There People can be, can be in it. It's yeah, not about ghosts or goblins. Yeah. yeah. There could be a, a crazy man crouching in the corner. Who wants to hold a gun to your head because he yeah. loves your musical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just a little too much. Uh, so, James, thank you so much for coming on The Gory Days. Is there anywhere that people can find you online? Do you have social media handles? Uh, I'll be sure to put your website in the description. Yeah, um, my website, uh, which you love, is jamesdelorean.net. I'm on uh, Instagram as James, just at jamesdelorean. Uh, and I think that's it. Uh, I'm on you can find me on yeah that's it okay perfect no band camp or anything you want to share no uh, yeah I've got music on my website if you want to listen to my music yeah it's a one stop shop as yeah. it should be yeah alright well thanks for coming uh, thanks for listening to the gory days out there thanks again for coming on but thanks for yeah. listening out there wherever you're listening to it I want to give you a big thanks and if you wanted to hear your thoughts read on the gory days about the movies that we're talking about or about past guests or how I'm doing you can reach out on Instagram Twitter at the gory days you can send me an email at thegorydayspodcast at gmail.com. You can leave me a comment on my website. That's four plus ways to get in contact with me. But if all you want to do is tell me what a great job I'm doing, I highly encourage you to head to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave me a review. Hopefully five stars, but uh, if you want to be brutally honest, I'll take that too. Uh, until next time, stay scary out there. The Gory Days.